0: It is good to see all of you this morning. My name is Robert. And I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill, um, and what we are going to do this morning is something that I'd like for us to do throughout the summer season, as we've gathered together as, as one church family to worship God on Sunday morning. We're going to take a little bit of time each Sunday morning, hopefully, uh, just to highlight or or share, really. Uh, an evidence of God's grace that we've been able to observe in the life of this church uh, that oftentimes you don't get to see or, or I don't get to see, uh, but it reminds us of what God is doing in the body of Christ, what he's doing in Redemption Hill and, and in Redemption Hill through Redemption Hill uh, to the larger city and to, and to other brothers and sisters. Um, I, I was thinking about this just a couple of days ago. The, the Apostle Paul, he was writing to the church in Thessalonica. He said, for what is our hope or our joy or our crown of boasting before our Lord at his coming. He said, is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And I thought, how, how scary must that be for a number of pastors maybe around the country? That they're boasting before the Lord at his coming, the joy and the crown of their labors. It's you. It's the church. It's the people that Paul has served, it's the people that pastors have served, and I've wondered if that's scary to some people, that the congregation that pastors lead is going to be their crown before the Lord, and as I thought about that this week, and I thought about you, and I I thought about this entire church family, I was so moved, and I was so encouraged by you. I was so humbled that God allows me to be one of your pastors, and that I, I can have confidence and joy in knowing that in the presence and return of the Lord, you are you are our crown and you are our joy. And so we want to take some time this summer to just highlight some evidences of God's grace that are at work and, and alive in this church and remind you of them and show you them. I did not bring my clock, so I'm going to look back up there. Um, just for your own benefit and your own glory. Uh, so two evidences of grace this morning that I want to share with you. Uh, one's related to what we've been studying in, in the book of First John. If you remember, in 1 John, particularly chapter 3, John said this. He said, This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and he sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And John will go on to say just a little bit later, how can you actually claim to love a God that you can't see if you fail to actually love a brother or sister in Christ you can see? And this is for you that I'm turning the clock on. I can talk all all day, but you probably won't want me to. And so I want to... Just share with you a demonstration of the type of love that John is talking about—that's alive and that's real in this body that you, most of you probably aren't aware of. And, and I got the chance to actually experience this just the last few days. Um, most of you don't know, but on Thursday afternoon, I received a really interesting phone call from another friend who is a pastor, uh, and he was telling me that uh, the great missionary pioneer uh, Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, Many of you are probably familiar with who she is, uh, that she and her husband Lars um, and one of their caretakers, Elizabeth's in her late 80s now, uh, one of their caretakers, uh, Joy, were in a car wreck just outside of Richmond, and they had been transported to MCV. And this pastor who had gotten wind of this, who, who did not know the family previously, and I'm not quite sure how he got wind of what was going on, uh, called me and, and said, do you think that uh, you guys could care for uh, Elizabeth Elliot and her family in the midst of what they're going through? They don't know anybody in Richmond. Uh, I don't know many details about the circumstances, but, but could you do that? And I said, you know, Sure. And before I was able to actually contact uh, Elizabeth's daughter, Val, who is here in town, who was able to come in to be with, the, to be with her mom, and uh, before I could contact her and find out details, I got on the phone and I started calling a handful of people in Redemption Hill. I started calling you. And I just said, you know, here, here's what I know. Would you make yourself available to serve this family uh, with whatever needs may come up? Would you, would you do that? I can't tell you what they'll need. I can't tell you what we'll have to do, but would you be willing to do that? Every single person I called said absolutely. And, and, and so I want, to, I want to honor, first of all, that desire and that impulse in you that said regardless of what's asked of me, I want to honor those who are worthy of this type of honor. Uh, I, want, I want to show honor to those with whom honor, to whom honor is, is due. And for someone who's given their, their life to such sacrifice and service for the Lord, I'll be happy to do uh, whatever I can do. Uh, but I also want to recognize this, just for some of you who would say, well, sure. If you called me and then said, you know, do you think you could help out her and her family, I'd be happy to do it. Well, I, I told every single person I called, you probably wouldn't get to meet her. You, you won't actually get to meet her. So if there's anything in you that wants to do that simply because you want to get access to somebody, there. You don't get that chance, but can you serve? Would you be willing to do that? And every single person uh, said yes. And so this weekend, I just want you to know that uh, our church family, not just a person or two people, but a variety of people um, have helped serve Jesus and this family uh, so faithfully. Uh, you have loved this family through a very difficult time. It's not yet done. Uh, the, 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 the struggle is not complete, but you have helped You've helped them in the midst of this difficulty and time, Uh, from one person sitting in the hospital with Lars, making sure that he got the care that he needed, that he was attended to when he was transferred from ICU down to uh, the the head trauma unit, someone sitting there making sure that he was cared for, another person securing a new wheelchair for Elizabeth, yet another person delivering that wheelchair to the hospital, yet another person washing clothes, another person getting food. Uh, another person now that is a part of this church family who is at the hospital with friends and family caring for Lars uh, as Elizabeth and her daughter Val and and their caretaker Joy are going to have to return back to North Carolina today. Someone's there in the hospital with Lars making sure he's getting cared for. You've done this um, with no recognition, no desire for glory, only love out of a pure heart. Love not only in words like John talks about, but in deeds and in truth. And I actually highlight this, not to make so much of the circumstance, but because I think it's often easy for us to talk about loving people and serving people practically and talk about in a group like this raising money. Hey, here's a need, here's what we need to do, can we give to it so that these people can be served and loved, but there was no money to be raised in this. There were parties to be missed. There was family time and and different events to be missed. Uh, There were priorities to be reprioritized. And this is what you did uh, out of love towards Christ and love towards another brother and sister in Christ. And uh, I just personally, on behalf of them, want to say thank you. Um, Humbled, I'm humbled by, by thinking about your willingness to serve, your willingness to show the very thing that we've been talking about, the very thing, the fruit of the evidence of new life in the body of Christ. Love, not just in word, but in deed and truth, to a brother and sister in Christ who needs it. And I'll, I'll tell you this, you will probably never know in this life uh, the extent to which you have blessed this, this family, uh, but that's what loving and serving really is all about. Uh, and so that's one evidence of grace. If you wonder if what we're talking about is alive and real in this church family, if you wonder if every week we talk about this, especially in 1 John, and you wonder if it ever really happens, It does. It does. You do give yourself, and I I love you for it. Um, uh, There's second evidence of grace I kind of want to bring up this morning as well. Um, The opportunity that we have to serve this family this weekend, uh, that's kind of unique. It doesn't happen all the time. Uh, But there are very regular displays of, of love for Christ and love for one another that happen every single day, and in particular happen right here on Sunday morning when we gather together. I mean, every week when we come together as a church family, each one of us has the opportunity to love and to serve one another. Every single one of us has has a chance to express our love for Christ, not only in words towards one another, but in deeds towards one another. And I think every single one of us should recognize that the posture that we have as we come together on Sunday morning is a posture of service. It's an opportunity to, to love one another and to serve one another. And we should be thinking, how can we do that? How can we come together on Sunday morning and serve one another? Whether it's as we've been talking about serving the Christ in our families by serving our kids, or whether it's creating an environment that's not only hospitable, but it's also possible for you to actually gather and hear the word taught and and see one another. All the different ways that you can serve one another are, are manifold here on Sunday morning. Uh, And so there's not just very unique things like what happened this weekend, but there's regular, every day and every week opportunities that we have to actually express this love towards Christ and love towards one another and how we serve each other. And, And for the last four years... Um, John and Amanda Tobin uh, have been doing just that. You didn't know I was probably going to say this, John, did you? John and Amanda Tobin uh, have been doing that this very thing for the last four years. Uh, in fact, if you were to go to our website, where the majority of the pictures haven't been updated throughout the site for the last three years, you'll actually see a picture of John when we were meeting in the cafeteria in the back running the slides. And so before we actually had instruments, I would run the slides while somebody sang, and then while I preached, somebody else would have to run the slides for the text, and, and John would go back there, and John would run the slides, and, and then as we began to grow, and we began to, to add the, the instruments to help lead us in, in worship, uh, uh, John would begin to play drums, and you saw John playing drums this morning, and you see John playing drums almost every single week if you've been here for any matter of time, and as John began to do that, and then John began to marry the love of his life, uh, Amanda, Amanda st- Lipped right into the computer, and she's been running the slides almost every single week for each of us, serving us, uh, facilitating us, and being able to, to make much of God as we sing by, by following along, and then as we preach and having the text, but but serving you in, in these ways. And they've done this without any desire for recognition, uh, without any desire for glory. Um, and I personally, because I got to watch my time, am, am very thankful for them and. I mentioned this particular example, uh, not other examples of the way that you are served every single week by people who call this place home, but I mentioned this one because this is John and Amanda's last Sunday here at Redemption Hill. Um, If I had the time, I would love to tell the story. Uh, but, But John has been accepted into a graduate program Uh, Where he will be, um, where he will actually receive a graduate degree in education, in urban education. And he's not only been accepted to a program, a graduate program for urban education, they're actually going to pay him to go do it. I mean, he's going to get paid to go to have education and practical experience in in educating children in the urban environment. And if that's not great enough, there's only about five, how many, six of these programs in the country, John? Maybe five or six programs like this in the entire country. John not only gets accepted into this and they're gonna pay him to do it and have a job when he finishes, it's actually the only one of all six that's run by a gospel-centered, faith-based effort. And not only is it gospel-centered and faith-based training potential and future teachers for urban education in some of the most underserved cities in America, it's run by a partner church of ours who's part of the same church planning network in Memphis. So John will be connected to a like-minded church who then are going to help equip him to understand how the gospel applies to the education of the most underserved in the city of Memphis and in cities just like that, and they're going to pay him to do it. And so this is their last Sunday here. Uh, and so just in a way, as a way of, of thanking them uh, just for the way they've served us so faithfully, uh, honoring what God is doing in them and, and, and is doing through them, and as a way of showing them our, our love for them, I just, if you don't mind, I, I want you to join us in praying for John and Amanda. Do you mind coming up here? I don't have to embarrass you. Come on up here. Where's Chris? Come up here, Chris. We just want to pray for you. Uh, we just want to publicly acknowledge the, the grace of God to us as a church. That's demonstrated through through your lives. We see His grace at work in us, as we see it at work in you. Um, Chris, you want to pray for him? Give me a mic. (laughs) All
1: right. (sighs) Father, thank you for the blessing of John and Amanda. We're so grateful for them. I thank you for loaning them to Richmond and to Redemption Hill. God, they have, they have been instruments of your peace yeah. and evidences of your grace among us. God, we now send them, God, in that same calling that, that brought them to us. Mm-hmm. God, we now send them. God, we now sow them, we give them, we bless them. God, to the city of Memphis and the church there. God, thank you. Thank you for this time we've had with them. God, we are so grateful. But God, we know that you've called them, God, to, to be ministers of the gospel to the city that you've called them. So, God, we're so grateful to and anticipate great fruit. Encourage them, God, when things seem unsure and when things seem uncertain. God, please communicate to them by your Spirit and through your word, God, that you prepared a place and a path for them. Mm-hmm. Oh God, we trust you and we look forward to hearing the great and wonderful things that you do through your word, mm. through them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks guys. What do you guys.
0: All right, we want to take some time uh, through the summer to highlight evidences of grace like this that are at work in you and through you. So um, I enjoy this. This isn't a distraction. This is just a reminder of why we do what we do uh, and the power and the mercy and the grace of a God that we love and, and that we serve and that loves us. Um, so thank you for that. But now if you've got your Bibles, open them up to the book of 1 John. You're probably already there. When's he going to get there? Come on, open it up. When's he going to get there? 1 John chapter 5. If you're a guest with us this morning we'd like to preach through books of the bible we start at the beginning of a book and we work our way through the end of a book Um, we go verse by verse paragraph by paragraph Thought process by thought process. Um, and so, right now, we're at First John chapter 5, and we're coming up to the conclusion of this fantastic book. And I hope you've enjoyed it um, as much as I have. Uh, but as John is bringing this letter to a close and this communication to this church, uh, he's actually going to bring it to a close by, by basically listing out uh, a collection of things that, as a follower of Christ, we can and should have certainty about. There are things that we should be certain about, though there are lies that we hear, though there are struggles that we go through, though there are doubts that we wrestle with, there are things, there are things we are to be certain about, we should be certain about. And John says throughout this entire letter, we can be certain about. And So he's going to just start and he's going to make a list of them, and then he's going to close this letter with a direction for how we preserve this faith that we're in. And uh, so if you look at chapter 5, verse 13, we're not going to make it all the way through this morning, uh, but that's okay with me. We're really going to sit with, with one or two great certainties this morning. Uh, if you look at verse 13, this is where we ended last week, uh, the fact that as a follower of Christ, you can and you should live with the certainty of eternal life. John says, I, I write these things. I'm writing, here's his grand purpose for why he's been writing all that he has said. I'm, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Everything that John has been writing, why he's been writing it, has served to undergird undergird this purpose, certainty and confidence in the hearts of God's people. And now John is gonna say that this certainty and this confidence that we've talked about this entire time and we specified last week spills out, it, it, it gives birth, it, it spills out of us, it produces fruit in us, and, and what spills out and the fruit that's produced is evidence of one of the greatest privileges that we have as Christians. One of the greatest privileges that we have in the Christian life, and that's prayer. Confident, yet unpresumptuous prayer. Conversation with the creator of the universe, fellowship, with the sovereign God. Uh, Listen to this. Uh, I I read this the other day and it just struck me. This is John Piper. He says, when you pause to consider that God is infinitely strong and can do all that he pleases, that he's infinitely righteous so that he only does what is right, that he's infinitely good so that everything he does is perfectly good, And that he's infinitely wise so that he always knows perfectly what is right and what is good. And that he's infinitely loving so that in all of his strength and in all of his righteousness and goodness and wisdom, he raises the eternal joy of his loved ones as high as it can be raised. When, and I would say if, you pause to consider this, then the lavish invitations of this God to ask him for good things with the promise that he will give them is unimaginably wonderful. Which means that one of the great short-term tragedies in the church is how little inclination we have to pray. The greatest invitation in the world is extended to us and incomprehensibly, we regularly turn away to other things. John says the confidence, the assurance that we have as followers of Christ, that we have indeed eternal life spills out into a life of confident yet unpresumptuous prayer with that God who has rescued us. Ourselves. Let's just read the text real quick, and then we'll, I'll tell you what we're going to do. Chapter 5, we'll, we'll start at verse 14. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. This text in particular is not aimed at directly dealing with or, or unpacking our variety of excuses for why we don't pray. He's not directly aiming at the the fact that many times we feel that God is indifferent to our prayers. I mean, what does he have to think about what we have to actually say? Or that he's impersonal? Or the struggles that we feel like he's distant, he doesn't really want to hear. This text really isn't dealing directly with the fact that many times we wrestle with not knowing what to say. What, What should we pray for? It's not directly dealing with what I know many of us wrestle with and the fact that we know we should pray. We know it's a great privilege that God has given us. We know we should be confident and yet not presumptuous in it, but we just don't want to. I mean, there's a million reasons for why John Piper's description of our prayer life is true. That we fail to understand exactly what it is God has called us to do and then walk in it But John's not dealing directly this morning with the reasons why we, or excuses why we don't actually pray. What he's trying to do is is unpack our, our hearts and lift up the eyes of our hearts, lift up our spirits to see the confidence that is ours. The confidence that is yours, if you are a follower of Christ, that relates directly to the relationship you have with God. He wants you to sense the confidence that you have To come to God in prayer. That's what John is after. Confidence that that God listens, confidence that God answers. And then, particularly, John wants to make it really specific, particularly as we pray for one another. And so, as we get started with what little time we have left, I just want you to know this this text is not exhaustive about prayer. This is not an exhaustive text on the nature in prayer and the manner of prayer and the method of prayer. You're not going to hear anything in this text about thanking God for anything or, 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 or making much out of your heart for God's attributes and his character and his nature. Not, not worship in that sense. This isn't exhaustive. John's after just lifting your eyes to the confidence that should be and is yours in prayer. Confidence that God listens, confidence that God answers, and in particular, confidence in prayer for one another. And so as we start, let me pray for us, and then we're going to go rather quickly through this text. We're going to stay at a rather 30,000-foot level. I want you to see the things that we're to have confidence in, but rather than talking about prayer a whole lot and, and just talking about those things, I want us to then actually look at what it looks like in the scriptures. How do we pray for one another from the scriptures? So that's what we're going to try to do in the time that I've got left. So let me pray for us and we'll get going. God, I pray that just in this time you would use your word to cultivate in us, uh, in our hearts, in our souls, an increased desire, an increased inclination in us to pray, to just talk to you, to have confidence in our conversation with you. God, I pray that as your people, we would desire to to talk with you and to know you that way. And I pray that we could do that with a confidence that comes from your word. And I pray that we would do that with a, a confidence knowing that you delight in our conversation with you, that you listen to us, you want to hear us, you want to listen to us. Lord, and we can have confidence that you not only want to listen, but that you do listen and that you do answer. Lord, and I ask that you would do this by your spirit and that you would not only cultivate that but cultivate a desire in us to know, to know what pleases you, to know what delights
1: you. And
0: this Lord, we ask for your glory and ultimately then our joy. Amen. All right, verse 14. Here's what John says. He says, this is the confidence That we have toward Him. So there should be a confidence that marks your relationship with God. A big picture, let's go 50,000 feet. We're we're flying way up in the clouds right here. There should be a confidence that marks your relationship with God. Your relationship with God is not to be characterized by timidity or, or fear, but rather freedom. And what John is, is talking about here is a, a boldness and a confidence and a, and a freedom that is to be yours, that is to mark you as a, as a child of God. The overwhelming thrust of what John is trying to say is that we should live in and we should have this type of confidence and this confidence and this assurance is ours through faith in the person and work of Christ. And this confidence is rooted squarely in the person and work of Christ and the grace that has come to us from God. It has nothing to do with our worth in and of ourselves. It has nothing to do with how well you speak, how eloquent you are, how many verses you memorized, how many things you've done for other people throughout the week. Your confidence is not based on that. John's entire argument for this last half of this letter has been that your confidence before God comes solely from your faith in the person and work of Jesus. So the confidence that is to mark you in particular in prayer is rooted groundly and solely in the person and work of Jesus. Your life should be marked by a confidence. Now in particular, what is it John wants us to recognize and, and lift our eyes up to see that we're to have confidence in? One, that you can talk with God freely as a follower of Christ you should be confident that you can talk with God freely. Look what he says. This is the confidence that we have toward him, talking towards God. Here's the confidence. Here's the boldness. Here's the freedom that we have towards him that if we ask, he's assuming that we're talking to God, we're relating to God, we're asking of God, we're communicating with God, we're in fellowship with God, and there's a freedom and a confidence just to mark that. Do you know that you can talk to God freely? Do you know that? Have you ever experienced that? Or do you feel like you have to come to God with a particular set of things and a, a particular rhythm to the way you speak or a particular function or, or a form to which you come to him? No, he wants you to come to him freely. I mean, listen to what the writer of, of Hebrews says. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Because of Christ, because of our faith in his person and work, because of who we are, because of him, the writer says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Paul, Romans chapter 8. He said that as a follower of Christ, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. John, in chapter two of this letter, talked about the fact that because of Christ and because of the grace of God, you and I have now become sons and daughters of God. We are a part of his family. And John says, you have received the spirit, or Paul says, the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ because of who you are, due to the grace of God alone, rooted squarely in the person and work of Christ, you can have confidence that you can come to God and speak with him freely. My son and my daughters, the thing I want most, one of the things I want most in my relationship with them is for them to live with the confidence that no matter what, they're never to be afraid to come to me. Because of who I am and the love with which I have loved them, demonstrated to them over and over, what I want most from them is for them to not fear me. If I, as an imperfect father, sinful father, manipulates and, if this is what I want for my children, how much more so our heavenly father? You can have confidence that you can come to God and you can talk with him freely, with freedom. That's the first big thing he's trying to just lift your eyes to. But you take a whole other week to unpack, just lift your eyes up to it. Do, do you know that? Do you live this way? Do you relate to God this way? This is the confidence to be yours. Secondly, John wants you to know that when you come to God, and you come to him with confidence And you can speak to him freely You need to have confidence to know that he listens That he actually listens to you look at, look at this John says that we can come to God with confidence And we have this towards God That if we ask anything according to his will He hears us And if we know that he hears us In whatever we ask He hears us Twice John says he hears us The, the ability to come and to speak With no inhibition The ability to come and speak with freedom, the ability to come and speak with confidence, that's a natural indication of a relationship. The more free my kids are to come to me with anything, to come to me and speak freely, to not be afraid of me, to come and tell me anything, to ask anything of me, that's an indication of the depth of trust. It's an indication of the depth of the relationship. I want my kids to have confidence they can come and speak freely to me, and I want them to know that when they do it, I listen. It doesn't matter what I want them to do, it it doesn't necessarily matter that I want to do something else. God has not mastered the art of the nod that lets you feel like He's listening while He's watching something else. Many of you have gotten good at that. God, John wants you to know that you can have confidence not only to speak freely but confidence that like a good father, like a father unlike any single one of us are or have ever had, he not only wants us to speak freely, but he actually listens. I want to listen. I want to listen so desperately because I love my kids. I want them to know they can talk to me, but I know how often I don't. God's never like that. He's never like that. You never bother him. You're never a burden to him. He's never wishing you would just speed up. Do you know how many times you said that? Come on, get to what you're after. He's not like me. He's not like me. You can have confidence, John says, that you can speak to him freely, boldly. And when you speak freely and boldly, he listens because he loves you. And John says, There's something else you should know. And there's something else you should have confidence in. There's something else you should have certainty in because of who you are and who he is. Not only can you speak freely, not only does he listen, but you should have confidence to know that he always answers. He always answers. Look at verse 15. John says, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Did you hear that? We have confidence that he hears when we ask, right? He hears when we ask, but here's the crazy thing. He says, we know that we have the requests. There's something in God that, again, we bump up into something we just can't even comprehend to a degree. There's something in God that when we ask, there's already an answer, Do you hear that? When we ask and he hears, we already have passed the answer. Your your prayers don't go into the queue with God. There's no pending wheel that's spinning. He files them off somewhere and he'll get to them whenever it's convenient for him. There's something in this that John is pointing us to that even in the, the asking and the hearing, there's already an answer. Now, we may not see the way that answer is worked out for a while, but it's not because it's in the queue. See, we, we get deceived, so so easily deceived into thinking that God's up there and, and he doesn't really care and I know how little I want to listen to other people. How, why would he want to listen to me? Uh, maybe I'm just burdening him. Uh, maybe he just wants me to, to get on with my life, but, but he's up there and, and I'm down here and, and, and he's not gonna really do anything for me. He's not really gonna listen to me. He's not really gonna understand what I'm saying. He's not really gonna work something out unless I can figure out a way to manipulate him to get him to do it. I gotta figure out how do I need to say what I need to say so that he'll actually listen because I know that I need people to say things to me in a certain way so that I listen and don't ignore them. How do I get him to listen to me? So so what do I need to do? What's the what's the form I need to say? What's the the chant I need to give? I mean, what's the tone I need to speak in? Do I get on my knees? Do I stand up? Do I lay down? I'm more holy if I'm prostrate on my face. I mean, what what do I need to do? Because I need him to listen. And then all I need to listen, I need him to do something. And all of a sudden, this privilege that we have to have confident, confident access to our Father becomes a way to manipulate Him, to try to achieve what we can see with our limited perspective to be the ultimate good. The Bible doesn't teach that God is some capricious, moody dad. He's not like me, He's good. And we don't need to manipulate Him to do anything. You can't manipulate Him to do anything. And John wants you to know, just big picture, your relationship with him should be marked with a childlike boldness and confidence that spills out in the freedom to come to him with anything. And the confidence to know that he listens. And the confidence to know that he doesn't just ignore what you say. He's not going in one ear and out the other, but he's doing something about it. He answers. He answers. Confidence is to mark your life with God. Confidence is to mark the communication and your relationship with God. Confidence but not presumption. Confidence but not presumption. Moms and dads know exactly what I'm talking about. You love your kids to come with, to you with things. You want to hear what's on their heart. You want them to share with you what's going on in there, but presumption? Assuming that just because of something they should have or get or presumption? Ah, that doesn't delight us. It's the relationship that delights us. John said there's a confidence that we're to have, but it's not to be presumptuous. You see what he does? He, he undergirds this confidence. See, he, he grounds this confidence that is ours with God by saying that we know he listens and we know he has answered whatever we ask according to his will. And there are scores of people, scores of people in the church who who think that to say that is simply just an excuse. It's an excuse to hedge your bets so that whatever you pray, if it doesn't actually happen, then you can't say God didn't do it or that God didn't fail you or whatever. They think that's a cop-out. That's just something to tack on to prayers to make yourself feel better. It it sets you up win-win. You can't actually lose. To pray that God do whatever God does in accordance with his will in this circumstance is a lack of faith. Come on. Tell him what you need. Tell him how you need it. Expect to have it. He'll do it. Don't say it according to his will. No, that's a lack of faith. Come on. This was the way that Jesus had taught John to pray. This is the way that Jesus taught the disciples to pray. our, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come your will be done and it wasn't just what he taught it's how he prayed I mean do you remember Jesus in Gethsemane before the cross free confident bold access to ask freely if there's any other way if there's any other way that you can accomplish your will apart from my body being destroyed Please, confident, but not my will. Your will be done. Did Jesus have a faith problem? I mean, did Jesus lack faith? This is how he taught John to pray. This is how he prayed. And in this text, John unpacks that our confidence in communication with God, our confidence in prayer is never more stable, it's never more powerful, it's never more sure than when we pray according to the will of God. Listen to me at this, though, before you run off in a million directions. John never says that God doesn't listen if you don't ask according to his will. Again, this is just one slice in Scripture. We could go to five other places that talk about the confidence and the freedom and the boldness to come to God with anything. John doesn't say God won't listen if you don't ask according to his will. He's talking about the confidence and the certainty that you have that not only has he heard, but he's already acted. And the way that you can have the most confidence and certainty is to know that you are asking according to his will. He wants the relationship he wants you to want what he wants. I, I want my kids to know and to trust and to believe that, that I want what's best for them. I want them to want what I want for them, because I love them, and because I want their joy. Again, if I as imperfect and sinful as I am as a human, and yet this is my desire for my kids. how much more so from God. So how do we know what his will is? Just how how do you know? How do you know that you then are praying something in accord with his will? Well, one, just simple. We're not gonna take a whole lot of time with this. This It's a whole other series in and of itself. One, simply, it, it comes from a relationship with him and a desire to actually know what pleases him. You learn what pleases him. As you pursue a relationship with him and a desire to know him, you know what pleases him. In the mystery of God's providence, he works in us to give us a heart to pray for what he wants. Do you have a desire to know who he is and what he wants? Do we want to find out what he wants and what pleases him? Some circumstances in life are, are so complex and, and so convoluted. and No matter how desperately we want to know what God wants in a particular circumstance. It just doesn't seem like we can ever figure it out. And that's where Paul comes in in Romans chapter eight and reminds us that even in those circumstances, God hasn't left us alone. The spirit of God that has taken up residence in our souls, conforming us to the image of of his son, intercedes on our behalf with groanings that are, I can't even understand. Praying to God according to his will, in our stead but there are plenty of circumstances plenty of times and plenty of ways that we do know we do know God's intended desire and we can take the time to actually figure it out and when we do we can pray accordingly and have confidence the most certain confidence that we can have that he not only hears but that he answers and where do you find that? Where do you find the clearest representation of the character of God and the purposes of God and the promises of God? Well, where do you find the most clear and accurate representation of the desires of God? It's the Bible. The Bible. We're not left with nothing. He's given us his word, and in his word, we don't get a more clear and accurate representation of who he is and what he desires and and what he wants. The problem is we tend to take this thought about the will of God and narrow it down and say what's the will of God in this job and for me in this person and and me in this circumstance and those aren't trivial things God cares about every single one of those things and I'm not trying to trivialize it but we miss the forest for the trees God's been really clear about what he wants he's been really clear about what his will is for you right here right now you give you an example here just an example 1 Thessalonians 4.3. Paul says, this is the will of God. How, is that clear? This is the will of God. Your sanctification. So here's God's will for you right now in the circumstance that you're in, in this life, in this city, in this day. Your sanctification. Your growth and conformity into the character of his son. That's his will. You don't need to look for it. How is your soul being cultivated into the conformity of Christ in the middle of whatever it is that's in your mind that you want to know the answer to? That's His will is that you become like his son. I'll give you another one. 1 Thessalonians, you don't have to go anywhere else. Chapter 5. Paul says this. We ask you, brothers, here you go, you ready? To respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. To esteem them very highly in love because of their work. I didn't put that in there because I'm up here. That's just where it is. (laughs) He said, be at peace amongst yourselves. We urge you, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus, Paul says, for you. I, I can't get more clear than that. Just, just one, that's one, that's one book. There's a whole Bible. We, 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 can f- we know the will of God. when we go to the most accurate representation and description of the person and character and work and desires and purposes of God, his Bible. So when you pray, you can never be more confident that he hears and that he answers than when you pray along with what he's revealed in his word. And then John gives us a very particular instance of prayer. Look at verse 16. John says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that, for all wrongdoing is sin. But there is a sin that does not lead to death. How many of you who are followers of Christ know that other Christians sin?" how many of you know that you sin? John says that your first impulse when you recognize sin at work in the life of another brother and sister in Christ is what? It's not gossip. It's not making sure that five other people know what's going on. It's not even physical violence. There are times you may be inclined that way. The first impulse of someone with the life of God at work in them when they recognize sin at work in the life of another brother and sister in the church should be prayer. It should be to talk to God, the giver of life. John says the, the way to deal with prayer in the church is to actually pray. I mean, to deal with sin in the church is to actually pray. To ask God and to deal with God about this. And you can be certain that he'll hear So let me give you just a very practical example. You recognize sin in the life of a brother or sister. It's not going to be hard for you to do, right? I'm going to give you two seconds. Think of something. You've already got somebody else in your mind that's dealing with sin. The will of God for you. you know God's will for you in this. It's to pray. This is God's will for you to pray, To, to pray for them. If that's not what you desire to do, then you can deal with God in repentance. But you can pray. God, show, show them the truth of, of who they are and what they're believing. You can go back to 1 John. God, help them to walk in the light, to agree with you about this. We'll compel their souls to confess this sin to you and to receive the forgiveness that only comes from your Son that you've promised for those who believe you. You can have certainty that God listens, certainty that God answers. Before we end, because I know this is a really strange verse to end on, and we'll, we'll come back and get more particular because I, I took up a lot of time in the front. Let me just deflate the panic that has come across at least a dozen faces as I look out here regarding the sin the Lisa death. I mean, there's like a dozen faces that have gone white when I read verses 16 and verses 17. If you come from a Catholic background, these are the two verses that the Church of Rome has used to build the doctrines of mortal and venial sins on. I mean, this, this is where it comes from. But I don't have time to unpack why they're wrong, why, why that's not what John is talking about. Uh, many people, many great scholars have debated, is this what, what was talked about, about the blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? Was this sin that leads to death, what was talked about in the rest of Scripture about the sin that's blaspheming of the Holy Spirit? I don't think that's what, what John is talking about. And so just to kind of deflate your panic, I actually think that if you just read these verses in the context of the message, in the context of the chapter, I think John is talking about the sin that has taken hold and is at root in someone who has become bitter and resistant to the truth of God by the person and work of Jesus. John just taught, and we just spent two weeks looking at it, and he just spoke about the confidence that is to be ours regarding eternal life. And that confidence is built on faith in the person and work of Jesus, that Jesus is the source, the bedrock for eternal life. So what I think when John talks about the sin that leads to death, he's, he's talking about someone who refuses to find life, who refuses to find forgiveness, who refuses to find redemption, in Jesus as the only true source, as the only true means of cleansing. And so if this sin, over and against the other sins, leads to death, it has to be a willful rejection of the truth of God about Jesus, who is the source of life. This is what he's talking about. It leads to death because, by nature, it rejects the only means to life. And that's what this is. And so if you dread Having committed this sin, let me just deflate your panic. Your worry about having committed the sin is probably good evidence you haven't done it. All right? Yeah, I don't have more time to go in. It's probably good evidence that this is not characterizing you. But John wants us to pray according to God's will, he wants us to have confidence and boldness in coming to God. He wants us to have confidence to know that God listens, to know that God responds, to know that God answers. And he wants our confidence to be built just on the bedrock that when we do that according to his will, we can live with this type of assurance that God is indeed listening and answering, especially when it comes to the way we pray for one another. And so let me just kind of close with a prayer from Scripture. I wanted to take time to go through a couple prayers from the Bible. So you could see how this worked out. I want you to actually see this. And so here's what I'll do. I will close and I will pray for us by by taking a prayer from the Bible and showing you how this works itself out. And here's what I would ask. I I would ask that as you go through the week this week, go to a prayer in the Bible. Go to one of Paul's prayers in one of his letters. Go and look at how see how he prays for the church. And would you take time to take Paul's prayer and, and make that prayer your own for your family, for your community? for your church family, for your kids, for your relatives, for your neighbors. You can know that when you pray according to his word, you're praying according to his will. And when you pray according to his will, you can have confidence. Confidence that not only does he listen, but that he answers and he responds. So let me pray for us according to the words of scripture and then we'll celebrate God's grace in communion. even as a pastor here I can say with Paul that I do not cease to give thanks 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 to you thanks for your grace and your grace at work in the life of this church and I ask God that you would give this body your spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge and the and the knowledge of you. That you would give us your spirit to help us know you more clearly, to love you more dearly, to see your satisfaction, to see what makes you you and for our soul to be delighted in it. As we do, that, the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. That we would know the hope to which you have called us. That we'd have confidence in the hope to which you have called us. That we would know and that we would treasure the riches of your glorious inheritance. Know what is ours in the gospel. And that we would know what the immeasurable greatness of your power is towards us who believe. That we would know your power not just in concept, but we would know your power personally towards us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places, far and above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. For this reason, God, I bow my knees before you, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of your glory, the limitless nature of your glory, you would grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit. So that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith, and that we would be rooted and grounded in love, that we would have the strength to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, your love that you have poured out on us in your Son Jesus, a love that surpasses all knowledge, so that we may be filled with all of your fullness. Now to you who is able to do far more abundantly that all we ask or think according to the power of your spirit at work within us, to you be glory here at Redemption Hill
1: and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.